Hi and welcome back to The Cypher where I, Christabel Insia Bwadi, talk to creators from around the global Black diaspora about how they're leaning into their route to reclaim our narratives and new spaces for all of us. On today's show, I am talking with the writer and founder of Just Read It, Priscilla Owusu. Stay tuned. In the world of literature, it can often seem that anything is possible for the reader, unless you're Black or a minority reader. And I'm talking about things like love and adventure and, yes, foolishment. Priscilla Owusu's interest in hearing the stories from primarily Black authors has led her to establish a real passion project alongside her career in communications. She's probably pulling a funny face as I say that. But yeah, she has a career in communications, but her real love is for, of reading. And that passion project is called Just Read It. It's a blog and we'll talk all about that. In it, she uses what I call her superpowers. That's her deep love of great literature and a good story to explore the intricacies of stories that center black people in all of their humanity. And because she just she doesn't just love reading books, she writes stories too. She's written a short story. Well, she's written many things, but her first short story, When the Tears Don't Fall, was published in 2020 and was longlisted for the fourth Right Short Story Prize in 2021. And she's currently adapting that story for her full-length novel. And because, you know, she doesn't like to rest, apparently. Um, she has another project. Uh, it's a project that offers analysis into the social and cultural relevance of the soul and R&B music of the civil rights era. I'm excited to get into all of this. Priscilla, welcome to The Cypher. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for the invite. Thank you for having me on. Oh, that's quite all right. Now, for full disclosure, we have known each other for a very, very long time. I'm not going to say how long we've known each other. So, you know, <laughs> talking with yes. our outside voice, but every so often we might slip into some foolishment. And so just understand that you might have a, a front seat to that. But I was excited <laughs> about getting you on the show because, Priscilla, you love story in all of mm. the ways. And in the time that I've known you, you have analyzed and felt and connected with the world and analyzed the world through story. Even when you're giving an example and you're like, well, this is how we do it. There's always a story that comes through that. So I really want to start with this. How did your relationship and your love of story begin? Oh, that is a really good question. Um, I think even as a child, I always liked reading, but I kind of liked it in a very academic sense because it was like you that's what you did when you were a kid. You got given books to read. <laughs> and so and I think because when I started school and I was already a reader as it were like I already knew mm. how to read and that was all very shocking and I became known that was my thing of oh she's a good reader so in school plays and things I'll be the narrator and mm. but I get, as I said it was very academic and I think it was not until a bit later that I realized that no this is a thing <laughs> Mm. and this is kind of what sets me up because I always told myself stories um to fall asleep um go by day by day you know I was that kid even though I've been you know doing whatever washing up watching tv or you know in school doing lessons I would be telling myself stories so I'd be half listening to what was happening around me but in my head there's a story running and I'll be picking up from where I left off you know so it's like okay last night we finished here and so okay we're going to continue the story so I'd always been telling stories but mostly to myself I'd never thought that anyone else wanted to hear those stories oh. and and I guess as I got into reading more and 
and really developing a love for literature more. I started looking at how stories could be told differently. So if I got to an ending that I didn't like or I really did like, I'd want to retell it with, or I wanted, or I'd want to tell a version of that story. Um, and I think I first started writing stories in primary school. I, um, I, it was for a school project or school assignment and I never did finish it I think I did what I needed to do for the assignment but then obviously I wanted to carry on writing this so in my textbook I remember continuing on this story and I'd long let finish that class I'd graduated out of that class into the next class but I was continuing on that story don't ask me what it was about because I really can't remember (laughs) but I do remember writing this story and also being aware that it was very much more um, what's the word? Mature than my age because I was probably about I was probably about ten at the time, and I'm writing. And at that time, I was reading books that were from much older age group. Anyway, so and that was the other thing. I was very much on advanced level in terms of my reading. And then again, you know, in secondary school, when you do like your GCSEs and you're doing literature and grammar, again, telling stories was the thing. I got really excited about being given coursework we had to write a story and I was like yay so got, all the books I've been reading you got excited about getting coursework yeah because I had to write a story you know don't ask me about the grammar and stuff I wasn't bothered about that I was yeah. but the writing a story part I was really excited about that don't please do not ask me the intricacies of English grammar because I could not tell you you know <laughs> Priscilla um, tell us about the intricacies of uh, English grammar yeah yeah exactly <laughs> Can you tell I went to private school? (laughs) Um, But yeah, but I got really excited about getting to write a story because then it was um, bringing together all the stories I'd read, you know, and telling my version of those stories, of those teen Mm. novels that I'd been reading and telling my version of it. May I got a question? So telling your version of the stories, what was your version Okay, so one I remember, um, there's two. So one, I remember the topic was, who am I? And I had read a story, like it was one of those kind of teen books, and I just vaguely remember that it was around um, identity in the sense that there was a group of girls in this school and they were hating on the one girl because they thought she was different. And it turns out that actually she was just like them and had the same issues and things. So I wrote my version of that. And I think at that time, race didn't really factor in that because most of the stories obviously while I was reading was had were centered white characters, but it never really occurred to me that it could be different. That to me, that was just normal. And, and then another story that I wrote, and I can't remember what the topic or the brief was for school, but I just remember writing about um, Elephant and Castle Station. And for anyone who's lived in London and has and knows South London and knows in particular Elephant and Castle Station, I don't know so much about now, but certainly in the late 80s, early 90s, that was not the station that you really wanted to get stuck around because really it's a maze wanna... and it's horrible. So I wrote a story about a young girl and actually this was a black character um who got lost in that station and ends up being attacked you know and it was around kind of like gang violence and things like that and you know and yeah don't ask me where I got the idea for that story but Mm. yeah that's what I wrote for my coursework for my coursework and so um so yeah so and actually I do know I got the idea from that I'd been reading The Outsiders um by S.E. Hinton 
Wow. So I wanted to tell my version of a gang story. Um, But I want want to jump in there because I think it's really powerful what you did, mm. which was what you're saying is that even at an early age, you loved story and you loved books. But rather than wondering why you went in there, you were just like, I'm just going to write myself, literally write myself into the story or write a kid like me into the story. Basically. And And it was very unconsciously done. Yeah. Hmm. That's, it was very unconscious. Um, And I think that's what it is. It's got, I related it to these characters on a particular level, but when I was coming to write my own versions of it, I was just writing what, not from a place that I knew, because obviously I didn't grow up in a, um, not obviously, but I didn't grow up in a situation whereby gang violence or anything was a feature of my life. It really wasn't. Um, but then I had the the background, as it were, for, or the basis or the foundation from this story, this story that I'd read, you know, by Essie Hinton. And at that time, when I was a teenager, Essie Hinton was my favourite novelist. I absolutely loved, I read all her books and I was just like, mm. I'm obsessed. So I really wanted to tell those versions because it was like you had... In though you had kids from, you know, low income background, which I could identify with, you know, they only had each other, um, you know, and there was that kind of divide between the rich kids and the poorer kids. And it was all the, it was all the mix and you've got, you know, teen love and all that. So it was all the things that you kind of enjoy when you're a teenager. And so I just, and I just wanted to write a version of that for me. So, so you, so you wrote all of those things where you were erased out of it and put yourself back in it. Mm. essentially. I was going to say, as an, and as I said, I didn't realise that that's what I was doing. Mm. When I look back, I realised that's what I was doing. Mm. And now when I'm writing, it's very conscious what I'm doing. But back then it really wasn't. And given that at that time, particularly when I was a senior, I wasn't reading authors by, I wasn't reading black authors. I wasn't, mm-hmm. I didn't have that history of reading Chinua Achibe and um, Ama Ata'edu. I didn't have that. I didn't have that legacy. I read mostly white authors. I'd read the occasional black author if I could find them in the library, mm. um, but they weren't presented to me as you should be reading this person. It was just like, oh, I just happened to find this book by a black author, so I'd read that, you know. And again, taking from that and seeing myself, and it was exciting. But then also, I was, I'll be kind of like taking my cues and writing or making up my own version of that story as well. So I was always kind of looking at what stories have been told and just making my own version of it, you know, if I was writing myself into it or so a character like me into it. So what do you you think that was about though? Like what do you think that was a spark? Because we've talked about the reading and you're like, oh, I just picked up a pen and then I wrote it. But what else do you think you were were looking for? If there was anything, because maybe the answer is, I wasn't, I was just curious, but what was the drive? You know, like what, what in your, what in your life was driving you to do that? Um, I don't know. I think it was just, I think it was just a desire to tell stories. I just knew that I liked listening to stories. Um, Mm. I was a bit of a TV addict as well. So, you Mm. know, soap operas, Dallas Dynasty, EastEnders <laughs> when that came on ah, I love you wow. know I just like plot and storyline and things and I I think I'm interested in people yeah. and people's motivations and what drives them and why people make the choices that do so I'm I was very curious in that sense so I'm listening to you right Lady P <laughs> which I'm now calling you 
in a very familiar way. Um, you said that you weren't conscious about doing that. You did that, some, you did that unconsciously when you were a child, but you consciously do that now. What changed? I think as I started, when I started Just Read It, um, it was out of a place of, I really wanted to work in publishing and the doors weren't opening for me. And when they did, it was at paltry sums of a salary, which I was like, yeah, I can't exist on this. <laughs> so that's a no from me. And I think I was in between jobs at one point, and this was around 2011. And I was like, oh, I could just write my own stuff about books. Um, and that time, blogging was taking off. And I, want, and I knew I wanted to write something. I'd been dabbling and doing little bits and pieces, mainly on other people's blog sites and websites and things. And I thought, why don't I just start my own? And so... I did that. And so initially when I started writing, just when I started Just Read It, I was just reviewing any kind of book. And then I started to move, focus more on books that were written by black authors because I just felt that we weren't really talking about that and we weren't really hyping up all these authors that were around there, but we weren't talking about them. And also I began to realise that I had a deficit in my own kind of reading range of these authors. So I mm. wanted to know more. So it was a bit of a journey for me in discovering these authors, you know, mm. and broadening my landscape. So I made a very conscious choice that I'm from now on, Just Read It is only going to focus on books by black authors, you know, whether African, black British, um, African-American and any other writer of colour because mm. I was getting more and more politicised in that kind of publishing spe publishing space that, you know, that we sent to white authors too much. And mm. also I'd just finished an English degree and had had been subjected to way too much Philip Larkin and James Joyce <laughs> and Shakespeare. And I was like, yeah, nah. <laughs> nah, <laughs> it's man. not for me. <laughs> got to change that. So, um... This is really interesting to me. I've known you for a while. Um, mm. And this information in some ways is not new to me, but hearing you say it is landing differently on me, yeah. actually. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, so just for, so for the audience to know, as you can tell by her accent, Priscilla is British. She's a Londoner specifically. Um, and your background, as your name indicates, uh, is Ghanaian. You're a British-born Ghanaian, as you and I mm -hmm. often say. We like to claim that, right? So yeah. what you do is very diasporic, right? You, mm. you, when, you, when you talked about Just Read It, which is your blog, and um, I'd, love you to tell I'd love you to tell us a little bit more about your blog. You've touched on it, and you touched on the why um, and who you cover. Um, but why diaspora? Was that a conscious decision as well? It wasn't initially. Um, if you look at the earlier posts, I've got authors, all different kind of books um, on there. But I think mm. maybe about a year or two into it. And I think as I was sporadically trying to find a niche point with it, I started to focus on black British authors and diaspora authors and the like, because mm. I just felt like we want we should be talking about these authors and these kind of stories more. And as I said, I think it was more of a journey for me because I wanted to know more. And at that time when I started it, there wasn't really that many people blogging on, um, on that particular 
genre, I guess, for want of a better word. And I stepped away from the blog for quite some time because I got lost in work and I wasn't doing anything. And then I picked it back up again. And then, of course, when I picked it back up again, the blogging space had expanded quite a lot. And there was all of a sudden, everybody was writing about black books. And, you know, especially with the advent of social media, you've got Twitter, you've got um, Instagram. And so there was all these bloggers that were on there doing effectively what I had been doing for some time beforehand. And then I was kind of like, well, is there a place for me anymore? Because maybe too many voices. Um, but now I thought, actually, no, there needs to be more of our voices. There is, we need to move out of that, there can only be one <laughs> kind of mentality. Absolutely. which Because um, we don't all think, share the same opinions. Yeah, which I think that you and I both are very familiar with. And so I wanted to move out of that mentality and just continue doing what I was doing. And before long, my work was being noticed by like the British Blacklist. So I ended up reviewing books for, um, for them and writing um, for them and, you know, just calling to attention new authors, um, especially black British authors that were up and coming mm. and public, the landscape in publishing started to change as well as publishers started to realize that there was a deficit in their output and were doing more to promote black voices. Mm. And so it started to get quite easier then, you know, with the um, being known as the, the literature review on black British and the British blacklist, um, I started getting publishers contacting me directly and say, oh, would you review this book? Would you review that book? So it's, it starts to become more. And you just become aware of how many people are trying to get their voice heard out there. And the vast majority find it very difficult because even when you do get picked up by a mainstream publisher, for instance, then you've got to go through the whole thing of this baby that you've birthed that you spent x amount of time writing now an editor's going to come through and try and tell you that oh well I think it'd be better if you made it like this and you're like no so then you see a lot of people going into self-publishing and I'd get a lot of self-published authors contacting me saying oh can you review my book and then I take a decision on whether I'm going to do that or not but yeah it's it's opened up my eyes to a lot of things and one thing I'd say is that in as much as the landscape is changing it's very slow it's not mm we're not where we need to be. And I think they still have their place because I mm. think, you know, we're strong. We, we still need to amplify those voices. Um, when you say amplify those voices, are you talking specifically about black British voices or black voices in general, because you are so diasporic? Um, I think a bit of both. I think black British voices in particular, because I feel one thing with the States is that there are a lot a lot more ahead of um, of us in the UK in a lot of ways, um, and I think the com- and I think the accessibility to I might be wrong and you can correct me on this because you've lived in the US for quite some time, but I feel like the accessibility to black things is easier mm. and a lot wider, and I think in the UK it's it's still seen as quite a niche thing, mm-hmm. and it feels like there's a gatekeeper of a few, there's a gatekeeper of, or, or a collection of just a few. And then there's, and then there's everyone else. And if you manage to get into that inner circle, then hey, you've made it. But then if you're on the outside of that, then it's like, mm, well, what do I do? Um, mm. And so it feels like it's a very niche thing. I mean, I still remember the days of going into the, like 
the the water stones or the foils or whatever bookstore and there'll be the black interest book um section which was kind of like on one level kind of useful because you know to go and look you know what you you want to read (laughs) but (laughs) at the same time you think well by doing that you're saying to other readers white readers asian readers chinese readers that you don't want to be interested in this because not for you black interest you're excluding a whole load of people. So, mm. um, yeah, I've, I have my things around that. You don't see it that much now. Um, I think they've largely done away with that. But, yeah, there it, there is a sense that black writing is very much a niche area. There is, there is a sense, I, I could be wrong. Um, no, but I it mean, feels I like think, yeah, I think in the US is there's definitely a sense of uh, black writing being niche, right? But I mm. think you are also right in that it's far more mainstream um, in the US or it feels that way um, mm. than it does in the UK. Like every time I go to the UK, I'm literally buying all of the black British books because it, it still feels like I'm finding gold. You know what I'm yes. saying? Because it's, yeah. it, it's that rare. But yet between the time that I left and now, things have improved so much, you know, yeah. Alex Wheatle, who I who is a writer that I I really really enjoy reading. He was around from way back in the day, exactly, mm-hmm. and he's still around and he's an advocate doing the work. And you know, I often wonder. And I have interviewed him in the past, and talking to him, it was a struggle for him, you know. And yeah. he has he's been very gracious in just making sure that um, black. British work, which feels very different to, you know, um, African work from Britain, for example. Do you know what I mean? Because it's a particular generation where it it changed from, you know, African writers in the UK to black British, which maybe I'm wrong in saying this. I felt like it happened during our lifetime, essentially. Like we were very, very young. And, you know, I think of the Mm -hmm. Margaret Busby's as well and all of these really Mm. like giants in British um, literature who really made a point of shifting the narrative and saying black British writing is important. Right. But um, yeah, it still feels like I, I find gold every time I go into the bookstore and, and, yeah. and see, um, see a black face um, yeah. on a book. I'm like, Oh, I'm yeah. going to get that one now. Yeah. It's exactly the same for me. And you know, I feel exactly the same way. I mean, you mentioned Alex Wheatle. I mean, he was probably one of the first black British authors that I read Mm -hmm, Um, actually no that's a lie but consciously kind of like had a sense of read as an adult I'll say yes um, read that read knowing that he he there was when you saw the book there was the potential of him echoing your experience yeah for me is what Alex Wheatle means because this so there's two um so I think the very first black British author I read was a woman called Millie Murray Hmm. um and I think her books are out of print now. She wrote for, I guess, early teens. You mm. know, that you know, I read her when I was probably in my early teens and stuff. And mm-hmm. so that was the very first Black British author I read. But I remember coming to Alex Wheatle and just being like, whoa, because he was talking, about, I think it was East of Acre Lane I read. And yes, oh my that, goodness. Yeah. Woo! And so that whole legacy around the bricks and rights, very much in, you know, your kind of, mind and that whole thing going wow oh my god and it was so real and the language was so kind of like 
that's this is how me and my friends talk you know yes. and it was yeah it was just so relatable and it was him and Courtier Newland oh my gosh now you're I talking mean, Courtier Newland actually so that, that was the one that brother yes. he was the one that made me go oh wait I remember I think I wrote in and demanded that I interview him in my teens and I did he he graciously yeah. interviewed me I talked to him years afterwards and I was like do you remember I interviewed you and he was very sweet just like no I don't remember that but <laughs> I interviewed him in a pub in Hammersmith talking yeah. to him about ice not IC3 what was his first book he actually changed I'm gonna say he changed my my life writing life in that sense the scholar the scholar the scholar because society within was a was a follow-up to scholar yes. and the reason why the i always scholar. think the society within is the first book because i read that first mm-hmm. before reading the scholar and that's why i was getting confused but yeah the scholar and to this day i will still go back to those books because it takes yes. me back to a time because i'd never read writing like this it was yes. in our language we weren't allowed and- to talk like that if you wrote like that then people would say you can't write but yeah. somehow Courtier Newland was speaking London, not British. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Black London at that. Exactly. And also more to the point is that I'm not even from West London, but I'm like, hey, these are my peeps, <laughs> Do you know? And and also at that time there was like the Express Publishing House. So you had that books like Yardie, yes. uh, yes. Headley. So I was reading yes. all of that. So I remember Baby Father had come out and <laughs> problematic as it was, but we're it. thankful it existed, though, because, you know, not everything has to be as we like it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know? and um, I was talking about this with a friend. There was another book. You, there was an author called Vanessa Waters. I think she's a journalist now. Mm. But she wrote a book called Rude Girls, and she was, like, 16 and loved yes. that book to death. And so mm. all of this, so there was people like, who were, like, like, maybe our age, but maybe slightly older, who were writing about a life that I knew and recognised. They were writing London. They were writing Black London, as you said. Mm. And I was really, I was totally here for that. And, I, and also it was introduced me to a new way of expressing myself that actually it's okay to write these stories. And I recognise it. And I, it's all right to put us in there. So, yeah, I think that's where I started. I want more of this. Thank you for listening to The Cypher Podcast with me, Christabel Insiabwadi. Sign up for our newsletter at our website. It's at www.thecypherpod.com. That's www.thecypherpod.com. I think it's super powerful and I'm so glad that you're talking about that because that also makes me think like from, I wonder if they thought at the time how revolutionary their work was, number one, right? But my question to you is, do you think that there's been an improvement? Like how, how has black British writing specifically grown in the time where you and I were reading The Scholar and going, oh, to now? (laughs) I think... So, yeah, this is an interesting one because I think for a long, for a while, I mean, you had the excitement of the Courtier Newlands and the Alex Wheatall writing about black youth, black London. And then mm. for a while it kind of, and then you had like Andrew Levy came in and she's writing about Small Island. She's writing about the the kind of second generation of black Londoners and the immigrant experience and the, and 
you know, with small islands, that very mm-hmm. landmark piece where everybody mm-hmm. was just really excited. He had like the likes of Zadie Smith, who, yeah, was doing her thing too. Yeah. So then they, they started to form a narrative whereby if we're writing about blackness and and Britishness, the two going hand, we have to be writing back to our colonial past, past in some way. Mm. We have to be writing of our struggles with racism and da 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 and how we've overcome because that's what gets picked up. So you've got a lot of books mm. telling the same story effectively, mm-hmm. um, which was fine and fair enough. But after a while, I was kind of like, I'm reading the same story. Yeah. And I think what's happening now is that you're getting people really kind of branching out and writing a very different story, writing and then write in a very different way. So you've got like the kind of activist kind of writing whereby they're caught, you know, they're calling out the status quo. They're calling out, you know, the various isms that are happening, you know, in our world today. Um, But then also you've got things whereby it's, we're not going to talk about the struggle, so to speak. We're not going to go with the struggle narrative. We're going to go with the everyday Kind of thing. So I'm thinking of like you know the likes of Sarita Domingo, who mm-hmm. I really love, who's really just pushing forward with like the romance narrative books because black people, black women don't get put we into love romance as well. Exactly. Um, and which was my thing because I love romance books. Um, and for a long time it was just kind of like, oh, these white women are getting all the joy. <laughs> We're not getting all that. the joy. Do you know what I mean? We're just like, a can I get that? You know, yeah. um, with the one line, you know, to centre and encourage this white woman um, as she goes on her journey to get, you know, love from whoever it happens to be. Mm. And, you know, fine, fair enough, you know, whatever. You know, I, I'm just here for the love story. And But again, I found myself writing my version yeah. and putting black women in so it was really exciting to me to see fresh writers like Sarita Domingo um Bola Babalola who's doing amazing stuff and amazing this stuff. new crop of writers like this kind of speculative fiction and this kind of fantasy or and very magical realism that's coming very different writing and mm. loaded with story and history and culture, cultural references that might go over your head or may not, depending where you're coming from. And that's really exciting to me because we're moving away. You know, we're not, I wouldn't say that we're dispensing completely with the struggle narrative or talking about racism, because I think that does inform my work regardless, because it's part of who we are. And and I would, and I, yeah, so I don't think we're away from that, but I like the fact that we're finding new ways to express ourselves and mm-hmm. we're not afraid to kind of put ourselves in the center of the pop, whatever pop cultural moment is happening. Mm. And so, you know, going back to the idea of romance, because, you know, the story that I wrote is a romance story, is a love story. And yeah. I'm just really enjoying the idea of having a central black character who gets to enjoy all of that, mm. you know rather than being the sidekick. So, yeah, you know, so you're talking about, you know, the kind of stories where the friend is going, go for it, go for love. We'll all be cheering you on. Yeah. Meanwhile, she's like crying inside because she wants some of that too. Yeah, it's sort of like, you're amazing, you're beautiful, don't let this man treat you bad, go for what you want. And it's sort of like, for God's sake. So I kind of want to disrupt that almost. And so in writing my interview novel, instead of, sassy black friend you know obviously the the central character is a black woman 
but I've surrounded her with, you know, either her family, her sister, you know, her aunties, you know, there's like a generational thing of women that are around her that are supporting her. And in her workspace, obviously she's the one black woman, but then I'm going to have sassy white friend because I'm like, yeah. I, Why not? You can be on the sidelines for a change, you know, while also, than us being on the sidelines. But also it's true. Some of us do have sassy white friends. <laughs> yeah, I have sassy white friends, you know, and I, I, and I love the, I love their sass because they can say and do things in a way that I don't always feel free to do. So I'm kind of going, yeah, you go for it. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Whatever you say. Exactly. Well, I mean, you said that there's a new generation of writers. Surely you have to include yourself in that too, because you are, oh, you're writing your yes. novel. Come on. I know. I know. I'm still getting used to that um, because I've spent so long I, I was thinking about it today. Like I'm a comms professional. Um, I generally work as a comms manager and and do some the odd marketing. And people often ask me because I'll always say, "No, I'm a comms person. I'm not a marketer." And I was like, "Oh, well, what's the difference?" And I think the marketers are the ones that are shouting about a particular product or service thing. You know, they're the ones going, "You should buy this. You should buy this." The comms person is the one that's kind of explaining what it is and telling the story of that brand. And that's me. And as a person, you get to be in the background. You're on the sidelines. You're just minding your business. You write the copy and go about your way. That's done. Go about your ways. The marketer picks it up and does all the shouting. And I think as with that, and I'm also I'm very introverted as well, I'm not very used to putting myself out there. I'm used to mm-hmm. be the one amplifying other people. So it's really weird to me. And for me to get used to the idea of like, I'm a writer and I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And I'm still getting to grips with it. And I'm still learning to walk in that space. But it's really strange to me. Um, And two years on, even after being published, I'm still like, oh, yeah, yeah, I do that as well. (laughs) I do that as well. Um, (laughs) You know, I think even though you you are struggling to kind of like find your way through that, you know, do you ever have moments of reflection? Because you have played a role in shifting the narrative in, you know, in, in Black British writing, you know, through mm. your blog. You know, like, tell us what has been the reaction to your blog, number one. You know, you said that people pitched to you. So what's the reputation of of your blog and of you as a reviewer? Largely positive, um, I like to think. I've not really had anyone um, kick you know, clap back at me and say, well, that was horrible. Because I, and I generally, I, I think I'm sometimes a bit too nice because I I know what it's like to be writing something. And it's your, so I try not to be horrible about, without reason. You know, if I don't like it, I won't come and say, this was absolute rubbish. I will just mm-hmm. be very kind of like, I don't enjoy it as much, but I'm not going to yuck someone else's yum. Someone yeah. else might be really into it, so but it wasn't mm-hmm. for me. Um, That's very I much like to think that I've, in my small, small way, you know, small, small potatoes, I've added to somebody else's career that I've been able to amplify their voice in a space that they may not have been able to be heard otherwise. I like mm. to think I've encouraged somebody to read a book that they may not have wanted to read or even thought that they could or should read. Um and that's what I've always wanted to do. As the as I got really into the the um the real thing of reviewing books, I really just wanted to amplify black voices. Mm. You know, I wanted I wanted to create a space for us. 
-hmm. and that space has widened and there's so many of us now and it's exciting I get excited when I see people posting their books that they're reading on bookstagram sometimes it can be overwhelming because you think oh another book to read but (laughs) it's exciting because there's so many voices and I'm really excited for all the voices that are being heard and Mm. are going to be heard and especially when you find something that is not in the mainstream but is a gem and you really like please read this book it's so amazing oh, <laughs> you know right. I love that and I hope that when my time comes you know that I'll be able to get that grace back you know I'll be able to rebuild on that too mm. um but yeah I think that's really that's really it and I think I just want in everything I do I just want to kind of whether I'm writing whether I'm writing whether I'm reviewing books whether I'm writing about music as I've started to do in the last few weeks um, yeah last month or so I just want to share our culture share what we've done what we've produced and yes somebody else may be doing the same exact same thing as me and better but I don't care the more of us that are talking about it the better you know and also this is Mm. my expression you know, this is my words. This is my voice. You know, I it's I know what it's like to be told you can't say that or you should be quiet about that or you don't have the range for this. And it's really about disrupting that and really about allowing myself to say well, and challenging myself to put myself out there in a way that sometimes I find really uncomfortable. I mean, I really struggled in the first few years of writing the blog because I was terrified to put myself out there it was only maybe a few years ago that I actually put my own my real picture up there before it was always Mm. an avatar you know (laughs) I I really didn't want my face to be present and it's only now that I'm really starting to walk into okay you can see my face and you can have my real name Um, amazing fine you can google well I mean I I say thank you because, you know, like, and you mentioned it, so lovely segue, you know, your next project, which is all about amplifying aspects of our experience as well. It's diasporic. It's it's this project where you're you're looking into the impact of, of R&B and soul in the civil rights era. So mm. tell us about that. What's it called? And, and you know, why did you wake up one day and go, I want to do this? <laughs> so it's part of the Just Reddit brand, um, mainly because of practicality of setting up another blog and maintaining another blog. (laughs) Um, But I've just called the series Just Heard. And I guess it's been bubbling around with me for some time. I I don't know if you remember in the late 90s, there was always those list shows, top 10. Oh, I I was obsessed with them. You're talking about, I love them. Yeah, so I'm obsessed with them. So I'm always kind of like on those. And I like, I'm, I'm very much someone who likes to know the context of things and mm. how thing how things were written and what things mean and you know I do this with just reddit when I'm reading a book you know where's the context what are, what are the themes that were coming out here and I was listening to you know the last couple few years particularly in the UK but worldwide has just been very eventful to say the least mm-hmm. yeah and you know, I was listening to I, I love 60s 70s music anyway I've always loved it so and I was listening to like James Brown and I just thought it's kind of really particularly in this time where there's a whole culture war happening in the UK over you know what you can and can't say and you know ownership over this that and the other and I just thought it's quite a thing to stand up and say say it loud I'm black and I'm proud because if you tweet that or you put that out there you can just only imagine 
the black the firestorm. backlash. Could you imagine? Yeah. And the what aboutery that will come with that. <laughs> and I just thought it's interesting to me how these songs that came out of a very specific time period still relevant today, you know, thinking of the BLM protests that we've had over the past few years and the fact that we are, no matter how much we know, no matter what the history, we're still in a place whereby it is okay, in quotation marks, for, or not even okay, it's not okay, let me rephrase that, it's not okay, but it's common ground, it's still common for somebody to be gunned down in the street by a police officer and no one blinks an eyelid. They go, oh, well, that was bad, and then move on, next agenda. And I think part of the reason why 2020 took took off in such a way was because we were all at home with nothing to do, you know? Um, And so, except voice our rage and channel our frustration with being at home with nothing to do into this moment. Mm. So, and I just thought... You know, we're at a point whereby everybody's protesting something and looking back at these songs are quite relevant. And looking Mm. at that time, what were people asking for? What were they demanding? Mm. And it's been a journey through that time and the context of the 60s, the late 60s, particularly in the 70s. But also it's been a journey for me personally because it's making me think about my childhood, how I grew up, how I got introduced to this music. Um, mm, wow. Yeah. It, so it's been quite, it's been quite interesting. Each post has kind of revealed something new, whether it's like a really random fact, like the children on um, the, yeah, the backing singers on St. Loud on Black and Proud were actually children. They weren't all mm. black. Um, mm-hmm. not mostly white and Asian because they just happened to be <laughs> hanging out outside the, the recording studio at the time. So I find that I hilarious. Am I am deceased. <laughs> but you know, yes. you, you need the voices and you get the voices where necessary. But Priscilla, you said something really interesting there. You said it got you to reflect on how you were introduced to the songs in the first place. So you're a British born child listening to black American music and you're introduced to it, I'm presuming by your African family, your Ghanaian family. Is that yeah. what you're referring to? So tell me about that. So um, so my mum had a very eclectic taste in music. Um, she was very much into Elvis, hence my name. Uh, and um, oh, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Yes, whoa. <laughs> I know, I know. I know, the pain. Because <laughs> she loved Elvis Presley. Yes, and it's so problematic in several ways. Um, not least Priscilla, Pris- this is the first time I'm hearing this. Do you really? know that? Yes. <laughs> so, so if my mum was alive now, she would dispute this and say, no, I named you after Priscilla in the Bible. And I'm like, I know the truth. <laughs> so, yeah, so mum later disputed this and said, no, I named you after Priscilla in the Bible. And I'm like, yeah, we know. Th- I know the truth. I suffered as a result of this. Mm-hmm. And it's problematic to me because for several reasons, not least that Priscilla Presley was a child herself when she met Elvis so I was like really (laughs) anyway moving on so I grew up with a lot of Elvis I grew up with like Motown um, records and Michael Jackson um all those things so Simon and Garfunkel Beatles so I grew up with yeah very different uh, three degrees (laughs) Uh yeah three degrees Exactly. So I grew up when I see you again. Excuse me. Very um, a wide range, and I liked pop music. You know, um, so 
so I, and I loved music and I loved lyrics and I particularly like songs and music that tell stories obviously obviously so, yeah so it was always interesting to me when you get a song that is telling you a story um and it's explaining something that's happening I really like that or and I really like to think about the story behind a, a song that's had so I think that's what was my motivation in doing this blog was to get the story of it and it's been really fun you know thinking about something like Mississippi Goddamn by Nina Simone I got introduced to Nina Simone through adverts and because in the late 80s 90s there was a whole series of adverts that were playing that were using Motown and 60s music as right things yeah yeah adverts sorry beer adverts right yeah yeah what else um, car adverts, perfume. Car adverts, yeah. Yeah. And and so Nina Simone's My Baby Just Care For Me, that was using a Chanel ad. Yeah. And that's how I came to know her. So I knew all her kind of like really nice, easy listening, kind of jazzy, nice tunes like that, right. you know, and who could fit that adorable vid- um, video that when they re-released the song, they had that adorable video with the cats and yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I, and I knew nothing about her activism until much later. And then I didn't know anything about how deep that activism went until I watched the documentary. And I was like, whoa, Antonina, <laughs> you were just a whole other type of person. Who knew all of this? Mm-hmm. So it was really interesting writing that blog because I'm telling her story and just getting into this really complex and wonderful woman and her real struggle and her fight as a black woman and in within this act and struggle and it writing that blog was actually quite hard that post was hard it brought me to tears at several points because I was the song itself is quite a strong it's an angry song um Mm -hmm. with good reason given the context of which she's written it from but also just thinking of her and her legacy and how much a lot was done to erase that activist Mm -hmm. legacy with the cats in, in the adverts in the resurgence of her career so I love it. Priscilla, thank you for all of the work that you're doing in changing narratives about Black Brits in particular. We didn't even get to talking about how you change narratives for African Brits. Priscilla Wusu, founder of Just Read It, a blog dedicated to the literature of Black and minority authors and of the blog Just Read It. Thank you so much for joining me on The Cypher. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to The Cypher. I'm your host, Christabel Insiabwadi. We'll be back next time with a new wonderful conversation. If you don't want to miss an episode, subscribe to our newsletter. We're at thecypherpod.com. And don't forget to tell your friends to do the same. Our production team includes Cerise Small, Larissa Witcher, Ty Hughes, and Eugene Kidd. I'm your host, Christabel Insiabwadi. Thank you so much for listening. Cypher is a production of MyLens Media, Inc.